All right, let's open our Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. We're in chapter 12, as I said a moment ago. We're going to look at the first 16 verses, Lord willing. I was at work in Riverside inside a building the morning the panorama fire got out of control in San Bernardino. Coming out of the building, the sky was dark and ash was falling some 30 miles away. When I got on the freeway, wondering how serious it was, my car uh, was covered with ashes and I had to use the windshield wipers uh, to see. I couldn't get a hold of Pam. Uh, of course, in those days you had to stop and use a payphone, uh, and uh, but she wasn't answering. So I decided to go home. Grew darker and darker as I approached San Bernardino. Pam was busy indoors with her daily activities, taking care of Mary, who was a little baby, and our dog, Kobe. Kobe the Wonder Dog. Uh, she had no idea Major Fire was now just a few miles away. Evacuation hadn't been ordered. There was no imminent danger at that time, but I thought it prudent. We drove a 1979 Honda Prelude. The baby, the dog, and a few pictures, uh, as I recall, were all that we could carry off. Panorama Fire, it was November 1980. It's still one of the worst fires in California. It engulfed almost 24,000 acres. It destroyed nearly 300 homes, damaged 49 others, plus a lot of other structures. My brother, who lived maybe five miles north of us, was one of those crazy people who stayed home to protect his house. And uh, somehow, by the grace of God, he lived because the houses on both sides of him were burnt to the ground. Uh, and uh, he's one of those guys, you know, the police came, knocked on the door, evacuation, and they hid, you know, and stuff. They're going to protect their house and stuff. So, And they did, but I don't know that it was worth the effort. <clears throat> um, four civilian deaths and 77 injuries reported. It was one of several times living in that area when a decision had to be made about what to take when you evacuate. Some of you have had that situation in different uh disasters where all of a sudden it's like, hey, you have to get out of here right now and uh, you can only take so much with you uh, and, and it's a very interesting decision. Now, I'm telling you that because Zedekiah had been set up by Babylon to rule Judah from Jerusalem as its king. Against the council of Jeremiah, Zedekiah would rebel against Babylon by forming an alliance with Egypt thinking that it would break the yoke of Babylonian bondage. Instead, it forced Babylon to lay siege to Jerusalem. During the siege, Zedekiah would try to evacuate, but he would be captured. And we'll read about his capture. It was pretty nasty. Ezekiel was ministering to the exiles in Babylon. The Jews still held out false hope they would soon return to Jerusalem. Ezekiel was called upon to act out another drama before them. He acted the part of an evacuee. And it was to re represent to them what would befall Zedekiah back in Jerusalem. And so, if you've been here with, uh, for our other studies, or some of them, you know that uh, Ezekiel, you know, I don't know if he was a drama major back in Jerusalem or not, but he's called to act out and to dramatize uh, and to signify and to show uh, these things. And uh, they're pretty fascinating. So I want to read the first six verses so you get a whole feel for what, our prophet was doing that day. And it says in verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, which has eyes to see but does not see, and ears to hear but does not hear, for they are a rebellious house. 
Therefore, son of man, prepare your belongings for captivity and go into captivity by day in their sight. You shall go from your place into captivity to another place in their sight. It may be that they will consider, though they are a rebellious house. By day you shall bring out of your belongings in their sight as though going into captivity. And at evening you shall go in their sight like those who go into captivity. Dig through the wall in their sight. Carry your belongings out through it. In their sight you shall bear them on your shoulders and carry them out at twilight. Cover your face so that you cannot see the ground, for I have made you a sign to the house of Israel. And so again, God was going to make Ezekiel a sign to the rebellious Jews. He was going to have Ezekiel act out a scene before them. And the scene he was going to act out was the evacuation scene. Uh, He was going to portray an evacuee from Jerusalem. Now, the wall Ezekiel would dig through was probably the wall of his own house. Uh, I, I doubt that, that, you know, they weren't living in Jerusalem. They weren't in a walled city. Uh, it certainly wasn't the walls of Babylon. And, you know, they were by the river Kabar. And so all that we can figure is that it was his own wall. Uh, you know, a uh, lot of repairs when you were a prophet in those days, you know. And stuff. God just said, hey, I want you to, you know, act this out. Dig through your wall. Okay. Uh, so he does. And, and I was thinking about that. Has, and just a question I'd throw out to you. Has God ever asked you to do something that is just a little bit strange? Uh, like, maybe not like that, you know. Uh, but just something a little bit out of the ordinary for you. I think that he has. Uh, the real question then becomes, did you do it? Uh, I've told this story before. Of course, I've told all my stories before. I don't have any other stories, but maybe some of you have not heard it. <clears throat> when I was a young Christian, I was working in, in Riverside. Uh, one day I came out uh, of our, uh, our office and every day at lunchtime in this uh, outdoor courtyard, I'd be kind of like at the Civic Auditorium out there in Hanford, there was this older woman who would stand up on a, there was kind of a, a speaker's podium there and just she just... For all I could tell, she was just ranting religious talk, you know, and stuff. Just at the top of her lungs, she maybe 85, 90 pounds, older woman, just going at it. And uh, I'm out there, and people are just walking by. No one's paying her any attention. And, and so I'm walking by, all dressed up real nice. You know, I was in a, a tie and a shirt, and I was a businessman and all that. And I, I felt like the Lord told me to go over there and listen to her. And I just said, no, <laughs> of course not. That's silly. You know, I know that you speak today, Lord, but <laughs> imagine that. And uh, so I just kept going, and the more I got closer to my car, and, you know, so I, I know I really want you, you know, and I had to start this thing, and so I started running practically and got to my car, uh, and uh, it was a 1978 green Monte Carlo, piece of junk. But uh, anyway, I got to my car, and I, I got 15 minutes away from there, before I thought, I'm going to die if I don't go back and listen to... I mean, it was just the, just the sense of the Lord was just amazing. So I turned around. Then I started to think, oh, she's going to be gone. Now I'm going to be in real trouble, you know. I, why didn't I listen to you, Lord, you know. And so, so I get there and she's still talking. So I went up. Now I'm an audience of one. I'm sitting there and you know, she's still preaching. Actually, she, when I listened to her, she was talking about the end times, preaching about the tribulation. All of her talk was right on. It's just that no one was listening to her except me, and everybody was now looking at me, 
uh, you know, uh, some kind of, anyway. So she keeps talking. Finally, she gets done. Just, boop, she's done. She gets down and she just comes over and starts talking to me. She's the nicest old woman you'd ever want to meet. She's not screaming. She's not crazy. She's not even Pentecostal. Uh, she's just really nice talking. And I started asking her every day. She just feels like God had put it on her heart to go out there every day during the work day and give a testimony. Uh, and I said, well, you know, no one listens to you. And she goes, that, that isn't my calling. It, it, I don't, it's not up to me who listens to me. Uh, you know, and so we prayed together. Uh, it was really neat. It was a neat experience. It taught me a lot of things about hearing from the Lord, about doing what the Lord wants done, about giving some people space who seem to be doing strange things. Uh, maybe God has called them to that uh, as a testimony. Who knows? Uh, and so, uh, you know, so I, th- I think all of us, if we're listening and we're paying attention, God will sometimes ask us to do strange things. Now, he, hasn't asked, he didn't ask me to do what she was doing. He just asked me to listen to what she was doing, which was strange for me at the time. Uh, and throughout the years, God has asked me to do many other strange things. <coughs> Come to Hanford. But, uh, and, oh, uh, did you hear there was an echo? <coughs> but anyway, somehow word got around that Ezekiel was going to act out another drama. A crowd gathered, probably waiting for him to come outside as tension mounted they first heard scraping then they heard uh, saw a hole beginning to form in the wall of Ezekiel's house eventually the opening was large enough for him to get his hands through and then uh, and then he finally squeezed through the opening digging through the wall indicated that normal travel was impossible if you're going to evacuate you were going to need to do it with stealth This was no natural disaster that was going to befall them, but a siege from an invading force that they were going to have to try to escape uh, under cover of darkness. He had certain belongings that you might carry if you were going into captivity. We can't say for certain if they were canteens or pots and pans, only that when you saw him carrying them, you knew he was not coming back, but planning to live as an exile. I think of Sam, the hobbit companion of Frodo in the movie version of The Lord of the Rings. And you think of him too, don't you, back there? Yes. Uh, I, I, I bear witness with your spirit, sister. But anyway, he's, if you've seen the movie, he's always carrying these pots and pans and things are just hanging off of him and he's got a bedroll and rope and all that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, but they're on a journey. You know, they're, in a sense, exiled out into the middle of nowhere uh, and you need to carry some stuff. And so that's the, so I don't know what Ezekiel had. It's funny to read the commentaries. These commenters, the commentators go into exactly what he probably had. What do they know? But whatever it was, you would look at him and it was enough to tell people that, hey, he's sneaking out of his house through a hole he dug in the wall and he looks like he's planning on living out in the wilderness. He's not coming back. This isn't just a camping trip. Captivity is the key word repeated six times in these few verses. Maybe there was a big captivity industry in Jerusalem and Babylon. Maybe there were survivalists who suggested a list of how to evacuate at a moment's notice. Uh, You know, who knows? I'm tempted to apply this to us as believers in terms of keeping our contact with the world as light as possible. But as I meditated on that, I, I really don't think that's a good corollary. I don't think that's what we can get from this. Ezekiel was talking to a rebellious people 
about being besieged and having to flee for their lives. He wasn't really warning them about wanton materialism and making their contact with the world as light as possible. So as far as an application for us, I think it is that you and I obviously are to be like Ezekiel. We are to live in such a way as to be able to represent to non-believers that a siege is coming. You see, non-believers are a little like the rebellious Jews in that they don't believe judgment is coming. We know that it is in the form of the great tribulation. Believers of the church age will be resurrected and raptured, leaving behind non-believers. There'll be no escaping the tribulation of those days. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. You know, there's all this fascination with uh, the end times. Well, not so much the end times, the end of the world. Um, We've been talking about it for quite a while. We're always ahead of the curve. And uh, then the newspaper, if you get the newspaper, there is a newspaper in Hanford, it's called The Sentinel. And uh, if, you, if you get that, they did a front page article not long ago about is this the end? And, you know, they're talking about the world's fascination with the end. And, and a lot of the stuff I talked to the reporter about didn't get into that, but it was about how the world, the, the um, secular people are fascinated with the end of the world, but only to deny the, what the Bible has to say. In other words, they come up with their own mythology about it, and it's always hopeful. It may seem kind of sadly hopeful, but it's always hopeful. There's always a ship that is taking people to another planet or a, a couple that is going to repopulate the earth. or something. And so there's that. It, they, it leaves you with the hope that, well, you know, first of all, maybe if we get our act together, we won't destroy the world. That, that's really the point of a lot of these films and, and, and distractions. Maybe we can save the planet and, you know, and, and it won't turn on us like Mother Nature does. You know, it's not nice to fool Mother Nature. But, uh, you know, and, and so maybe we can say, but if we don't, if the race has to go down, if the whole human race goes down, aliens from another planet will save us or somebody will take us and repot- we're going to go on. My, my, our, our, you know, the humanity will go on in some con. And so, you know, that's kind of the thing. And so people in the world, they're, they're a little bit afraid about things. Well, some of them are a lot afraid about things, but they have this kind of false hope that everything might be all right, either for them or just generally. And, um, and we're the ones that say, hey, uh, no, everything's not going to be all right. It's going to be all right eventually. But here's what has to happen. Uh, Christians have to leave. Uh, we can't be here for what's going to have to happen. And so there's going to be a resurrection, there's going to be a rapture, and then uh, it's going to be Haiti all over the world for at least three and a half years. Uh, and, and, and I don't say that lightly, but uh, it's going to be like what's going on in Haiti right now all over the world, whether it's a flood or a, uh, an earthquake or stuff falling out of the sky hundreds of thousands and millions and billions of people are going to die. There won't be any help coming from other countries because every country will be in some kind of turmoil. Uh, and so, you know, there's not going to be a hole in the wall to escape from. You know, even, uh, you know, there are people who think they're going to survive the Great Tribulation uh, not unscathed. Uh, I don't think God wants us to adopt ever a survivalist mentality. We need to be around non-believers up until the rapture so that they can be saved by our testimony and example. Put it this way. Our task 
The task we've been given as Christians is not to survive, but to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so a lot of times, I only throw that out there because a lot of times there are Christians who kind of get out there and they, they want to be survivalists, they want to take care of their family, they're planning on going up to the woods. That, you know, <clears throat> I'm not talking about whether you have a gun or not, that's fine. I'm talking about real survivalists who we need to get away from it all because everything's going to fall apart. Okay, I just don't see that in the Word. Jesus said, I want you to occupy until I come. He didn't say, I want you to stay alive as long as possible, hiding in the woods until I come. So I want you to occupy because you're, you're Ezekiel. You need to show these people that there is no escape when this day of judgment comes except to trust Christ. And so that's, I think, an application for us. Verse 7, so I did as I was commanded. I brought out my belongings by day as though going into captivity. And that evening I dug through the wall with my hand. I brought them out at twilight and I bore them on my shoulder in their sight. Uh, Ezekiel did what he was told. He acted out the part. He acted out the drama. Now, usually in the Bible, this idea of acting is portrayed as a negative. Uh, We read of hypocrites in the New Testament. And we're told that the word comes from the Greek, meaning the wearing of a mask. Hupokrito, behind the mask. The Greek actors were hypocrites. They wore masks playing different parts. And it's applied to those who act spiritual, but who have only a false or external righteousness rather than a true internal one. Jesus called the religious leaders of his day hypocrites because all their activity was outward while he said inwardly they were like white, well, they were like whitewashed tombs, he said. Outwardly you look great, wonderful tomb from the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. There was no real spiritual life. And so that's what we normally think of when we think of acting. But in this case, the concept of acting out is a good one. We would say we are to act like believers, to act according to what we believe. When people see your life, they should see a person who acts according to the Word of God. Have you ever told someone, act your age? Well, you've told me that, so I know you have. Uh, and and that's, a, you know, that's a good thing. You say, hey, I want you to act your age. I want you to, to, to be mature. That's what is happening here. Act like a Christian. Having said that, I would qualify it by reminding us that we are to act out what God has worked in us. We're to be true actors rather than hypocrites hiding behind any mask of self-righteousness. And so we're to have integrity, uh, to be the same all the time, not to put on a false front when in reality we're not very spiritual, but we're to act like Christians. Just you know, That's why we call our, our men's ministry Act Like a Man. It's from a verse in Corinthians that, where Paul says, I want you to act like men. You know, Do what you're supposed to do as a man, as a Christian man. And so that's the sense that we have here. Now, you might have noted in verse 6 that Ezekiel was told to hide his identity by covering his face while evacuating. That's because he was acting out the fate of Zedekiah in particular, and that guy would need to try and not be recognized when he fled. Ezekiel explained his one-act play in the next set of verses. Verse 8, And in the morning the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, What are you doing? Apparently the crowd gathered around Ezekiel's house 
didn't catch the significance of his actions. Uh, You know, sometimes uh, symbolism, though simple, uh, you don't always get it because you're not thinking in the right terms. They didn't have the proper perspective. They had earlier said they had eyes to see but didn't see, ears to hear but didn't hear. They kept thinking God is never going to let the the temple fall. He's never going to give up the throne. We're going to go back to Jerusalem. This is just a blip. You know, Babylon is, they're bad, but they're not that bad. God's not going to let them totally take over. Uh, And so Ezekiel acts this out, which is pretty obvious what he's doing. He's acting out the, the, you know, the, the picture of an evacuee having to leave. At that time, Jerusalem was not besieged. And so you could glean that well, maybe, maybe this is going to get worse. But because they had this tunnel vision, they couldn't see it. And so they said, okay, you know, uh, we don't get it. Ever feel like your witness is having no effect on people around you? That they're just not getting it? You're, you're living in front of them in the best way that you know how. You're saying words that, that make sense. Uh, you you witnessing and using the Bible. Uh, it could be because you're blowing it, but usually it has to do with the hardness of the hearts of those non-believers who are around you. And they just don't seem to be getting it. Well, uh, God's people didn't get it when Ezekiel was bringing them the word. But hard hearts can be broken. We're all familiar with the effect of running or dripping water on even the hardest rock. Over time, it smooths, it penetrates. And so can God's living water when it is dispensed by you over time. Uh, Again, we're not called to the result necessarily, right? Paul in the New Testament, he says some people plant seeds, some people break up ground, some people water, other people harvest. Uh, And so the idea is that we're all involved in the work. We're all to just give forth the living water of God's Word, the refreshment of God's Word. And if you're in a situation where people just don't seem to be getting it, you're in good company because Ezekiel, this guy was acting his heart out. He, he tore a hole in the wall of his house with his bare hands. I mean, this is, his, this is like an Academy Award performance or at least a Golden Globe, right? I mean, this, wow, this is, this, is, this is a prophet who really you know, has his craft and then his audience says, uh, yeah, I don't get it. What's all that about? And, and, and they didn't. And so people don't always get the word. The explanation to the people doesn't come until the following morning. They had to return to hear it. We certainly don't suggest that you toy with non-believers by waiting to close the deal. Uh, I think it was, uh, maybe it was on uh, Caltech class on Sunday night, but recently one of the boys was sharing uh, the story about D.L. Moody, how he gave uh, an, uh, the, uh, the gospel on a Sunday night at his church in Chicago. And then he told people to go home and think about it for a week and come back the following Sunday. And then he would ask them to make a decision for Christ. And then the Chicago fire broke out and many of those people were killed. Uh, and so he said he would never do that again. He would always give people an opportunity. If he shared the gospel, he was going to give people an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And so we're not talking about anything like that. But these people were God's people, remember, and the Lord made them wait a day to hear the explanation. Sometimes God's people, even in church, are a little hardened. It can take some time for the word to penetrate. Again, we're just called to keep pouring, to keep delivering the word. It can be discouraging, 
Whenever I think, you know, I'm discouraged because maybe people aren't getting the word, I, I think of how God is patient with me because I don't get hardly anything, uh, you know, un, uh, until my wife explains it to me. And then, then it makes perfect sense, you know. But I'm, I'm pretty dumb when it comes to just common sense things even. And so, uh, you know, don't be discouraged. Don't grow discouraged. There's power in the Word of God. It's just that some people are just extremely hard like you were before you got saved, many of you. But that water can have its effect and it can smooth and it can break. Verse 10, Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, This burden concerns the prince in Jerusalem and all the house of Israel who are among them. Burden, meaning the prophecy, was mostly about Zedekiah. Ezekiel always referred to him as a prince rather than a king because he wasn't the rightful king. He had been appointed to rule uh, over Judah and Jerusalem by uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he was not in the line as, as a rightful king of Judah. The house of Israel were those still in Jerusalem. They too would try to evacuate during the siege, but the focus here was on Zedekiah. But the, the general picture to the people in exile is a siege is coming, they're, they're going to try and escape through the wall, but it's not going to work. Verse 11, say, I am assigned to you, as I have done, so shall it be done to them. They shall be carried away into captivity. And so God had made up his mind, siege and all that followed from it was coming. Verse 12, and the prince who is among them shall bear his belongings on his shoulder at twilight and go out. They shall dig through the wall to carry them out through it. He shall cover his face so that he cannot see the ground with his eyes. I will also spread my net over him, and he shall be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. Interesting prophecy. Let's see what it means. The historical account of the fulfillment of this is found in 2 Kings chapter 25. I'll read those verses to you. Uh, this is how it actually came down when the siege took place. It says, Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and he camped against it, and they built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city wall was broken through, and all the men of war fled at night by way of the gate between two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were still encamped all around against the city. And the king went by the way of the plain. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they pronounced judgment on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze fetters, and took him to Babylon. And so, uh, just as Ezekiel had prophesied he would be taken to Babylon, but remember he said he wouldn't see it. You think, huh, I wonder what that means. Oh, you don't want to know what that means. Uh, the last thing he saw was the assassination, the murder really, of his sons, and then they put out his eyes and he was carried away captive. It was that yet future scene that Ezekiel had acted out for the exiles. Verse 14, I will scatter to every wind all who are around him to help him and all his troops, and I will draw out the sword after them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord when I scatter them among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. 
Now, the conquering Babylonians, as well as other nations in the world, would obviously think that God was not mighty to save his people. In fact, he was. They were overrun as a punishment. And Babylon, far from being superior, was nothing more than the rod of discipline in God's mighty to save hand. There would be no going back to Jerusalem, not for at least 70 years. Verse 16, But I will spare a few of their men from the sword, from famine and from pestilence, that they may declare all their abominations among the Gentiles wherever they go. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. God always intended Israel to be a testimony to the other nations of the world. Even in her sin, the Lord would use her to give testimony. The remnant would declare to the other nations they were scattered into how terrible were the sins of Israel and how just was the punishment of God. In the New Testament, we read about Ananias and Sapphira. You remember them. They saw the accolades that Barnabas received when he gave a big donation to the young church. And so they decided to sell some property uh, and give the money to the church. That's fine. Nobody asked them to do it. They decided to keep some of the money for themselves. That's fine. Nobody asked, told them they couldn't. But they lied about it. They said, we're going to tell the church we gave all of the proceeds when in fact we're keeping some for ourselves. Uh, God gave Peter a word of knowledge, something he couldn't have known otherwise. And uh, first uh, Ananias came in and Peter questioned him and he lied. Peter said, hey, you're lying to God, you're lying to the Holy Spirit, and he died. He lied. Back then they had a saying, you lie, you die. Uh, but, uh, so then they drug him out. And then uh, his wife, Sapphira, came in and, and Peter, hey, uh, did you guys sell a piece of property? Yeah, did you sell it for this much money? Yeah. Wow. You know, your husband, uh, he, he was here a little while ago. He lied, he died. Guess what? Uh, and she died. Uh, and, and so they were a testimony. Uh, not the kind of testimony they wanted to be. Uh, not the kind of testimony you want to be at all. But they still were a testimony and it brought fear, a godly fear, into the young church. You and I always give testimony through our lives. The, the thing is, what are we saying? What am I saying? Uh, because we are a testimony. We can give a testimony verbally, but we already are a testimony. People are watching our lives, whether they're family or friends or co-workers, whoever they are. We, we are communicating to them something about what we believe. The Jews in and outside of Jerusalem just wanted things to get back to normal. Since they had a heritage of godliness, they thought that God would cover for them while they sinned grossly. They just want to get back to being Jews. You know, just get rid of this Babylonian threat and let's get back to just, you know, we'll worship in the temple, we'll worship in the high places, we'll set up idols, we'll worship Jehovah. You know, we got a good thing going here. Most secular people I know always want things to get back to their idea of normal. They're trying to create some kind of a world that is normal for them. And when things happen, when history intervenes or sickness or whatever it is, they want so bad to get back to normal. But they never want to factor in God. They want to go about either indifferent to Him or ignoring Him or acting immorally. And God just won't have it. It's not good for them because there is eternity to consider. And that's why things can never really be normal. Because God has to allow things to happen so that people can confront the reality of heaven, the reality of their own uh, you know, mortality. 
the worst thing that could happen is that people would be left completely alone to live a just a cruise through life and live what they would consider a normal existence uh, because then they would never have to confront uh, the fact of their mortality. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, people die. I was at the uh, Lamore Police Department today and we were, uh, I, I guess it's, I'm kind of like the grim reaper there uh, because I'm the chaplain, I make death notifications. So they always, we always end up talking about death uh, there, you know. And uh, one of the gals was talking about a fella here yeah, locally, some of you may know him, I forget his name, and, and you know, but uh, everything's going fine, he's 53 years old, he's having a great day, goes into the bedroom to change his clothes, his wife thinks he's taken an awful long time coming out of the bedroom, goes in there and apparently he had an aneurysm and just he was dead in an instant, he was just gone, uh, you know, and so, uh, you know, that happens, it's not to scare people, but things happen. And, and so God shakes up the world and He shakes up our world and He says there's something more going on here. There's, there's mortality and there's immortality. There's corruption and there's incorruption. The mortal needs to put on immortality. The corrupt needs to put on incorruptible. You need to meet Jesus Christ. And so that's uh, what uh, is occurring. The Jews just wanted things to be normalized and God said, I, I can't allow that because your idea of normal is immoral and it's carnal and it's secular uh, and, and that won't do. That's not the life I created you for. As far as our world, a siege that people cannot escape is coming. And it's coming very soon. It's up to us to give testimony that Jesus is the way of escape. Uh, and uh, like Greg Laurie likes to say, if a person can't live for Christ now, it's going to be very hard for them to die for Him then. Uh, and so, uh, just live your life. You know, uh, be a Christian, have, be a person of integrity, share what God is doing in your life, share your love for God, uh, allow the Holy Spirit to fill you and to overflow from you, and um, people will, will find you. They'll seek you out. If God asks you to do something a little strange, step out and do it. Uh, he's not going to ask you to do anything really crazy, crazy. Well, He might, but uh, it, He'll build up to it. And uh, just, you know, by strange I mean, hey, I want you to go talk to that person or I want you to say this or I want you to take this path or that path. Think of Jesus, how, you know, remember the road, he was going somewhere and he says, hey, we have to go through Samaria. Samaria? No one goes through Samaria. It's not, first of all, it's not on the way, Jesus. And the Samaritans hate us. And he said, no, I've got to go through there. And uh, I... I'm not sure in his humanity even how much Jesus knew about what was going to happen. So they get to the well. You remember the story? And Jesus says, hey, you guys go into town. Go get some provisions. Go do whatever you need to do. I'm just going to hang out here at the well and get, uh, get some rest. And then he hears the footfall of the woman coming from the village. And he engages her in conversation, one of the great conversations in the gospel. Uh, and, and, and as a result of it, the entire village gets saved. Uh, because he did something unusual. He went through Samaria. Now, I'm not suggesting you drive down and get off in East L.A. or anything like that, you know, but, uh, but there are some strange things that God might ask you to do, uh, and you might find yourself uh, turning left instead of right, you know, that, and just let the Lord lead in those situations. Amen?